0: A reading from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.
1: Beginning last week, we looked at a, and we also extrapolated out uh, the understanding of third culture as it pertained to our mission action plan. This third culture is a culture that Jesus constantly preached and taught about. It is when the church becomes its most luminous and the brightest. It is when you can love someone who is not like you. It's a culture that seeks the other, a culture that reconciles and forgives, a culture that includes the outsider, a culture that is based on the understanding of the words of Jesus from Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. Love God, love people. The first informs and empowers the second. So let's refresh ourselves with the words of Jesus. And he said, love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In our busy lives, we uh, perhaps silence the second part of this commandment. But using our mission action plan as a guide, we want to amplify and not silence the second part of Jesus's command. Therefore, living out a third culture places the well-being of the other above that of our own, primarily because of our love for God. In last week's message, we focused primarily on those who are outside of our faith community. We call that outreach but the third culture question and the question our new mission action plan asks of us and that is it requires us also to inreach with our faith community. The third culture question requires us to have right relationships. It requires us to live a life worthy of the gospel. So let's look at together look together at Romans chapter 12 verses 9 to 21 and make some observations that relate to third culture living and let's answer the question of who is my neighbor Romans 12 starts with an amazing statement in verse 1 it says therefore i urge you brothers and sisters to view the, in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice holy And pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. The reason why we were set free and cut loose from the wrath of God wasn't so that we could bide our time until Jesus returns or until we shuffle off this mortal coil. It actually is so that we can be set free to serve. And to please God, to put a smile on God's face as big as the Golden Gate Bridge. The grace of God is not satisfied to just liberate you from judgment. God actually wants to transform you. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 reminds us that this happens through the renewing of our minds. No longer being conformed to the pattern of this world with its idols, and with its Christless dreams, and its Christless ambitions. So at the end of the day, we can give God pleasure. Christianity this morning is a win-win scenario. God promises to remember our sins no more, but every obedient choice you make and I make is remembered and honoured and rebounds To the glory of God for all eternity. In other words, God is hard to satisfy. Nothing less than the death of Jesus could satisfy God. But he's easy to please. A broken and contrite heart will please God every time. So let's look at these verses from a third cultural perspective. You and me and Jesus. And the you from your perspective, is everyone you meet here and out there. Here and out there. One could summarise God's word in Romans chapter 12 this way. If you want to please God, then love me and love my people and love your enemy. If you want to please me, God says, love me, love my people and love your enemy. So, Let's make our first observation from Romans chapter 12, um, and beginning in verse 9, it says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. One thing that Jesus and the average American have in common is that they can smell a hypocrite a mile away. This third culture imperative is called calling us to love from the heart. You will never be like God unless you share his passion. Now, the work of the Spirit is transforming us and renewing us from one degree of glory to the next. And it is evident by two aspects this morning. On one hand, we begin to hate what God hates. Those sins that, that, that gave you pleasure, that gave us pleasure, that begin to leave a bad taste in our mouth. When we commit them, then secondly, you love what God loves. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. The problem is that evil has been downplayed in our culture. It sounds too judgmental. It sounds too binary that there is only two choices, good and evil. Or we hate those sins that only press our buttons. Now, let me get a bit controversial here. If you're a left-winger and you vote Democrat, you will rightly detest issues like poverty, injustice, racism. You will rightly be grieved by the greed that happens in society, by the violence that is committed. You will detest corporate fat cats who rip off the economically challenged. You will despise uh, descriptions used to start war. Uh, or deception, sorry, used to start war that should never have been started. Uh, You don't tolerate the way in which refugees are treated and you are absolutely right if that is how you perceive and how you um, view the world. Now, if you're a right-winger and you vote conservative, you will be very, very upset about abortion, sexual immorality, easy divorce. You will hate the, the promotion of sexual immorality and the sexualization of children. You will be furious at the way same-sex couples are able to adopt children. The issue isn't either or. The issue is not a binary issue of right or wrong. We must hate with a passion Not just left-wing sins or right-wing sins, but all sins. All sins that press God's button. A third culture engagement with the unsaved is about what God thinks and not some ideology that speaks just about one kind of issue. If our love is to be sincere this morning, then God's love must be at the centre of our being regulating our lives. Jerry Bridges said these words, he said, both sides tend to make the mistake of allowing a semi-trailer of respectable sins to park itself smack bang in the middle of our lives. So we are quite happy to live with discontent and thanklessness and lack of self-control and envy and jealousy and sarcasm and ridicule. Let us love God by abhorring what is evil and not just the ones that press our buttons. Now, it's hard to be sincere in your love if you're not maintaining your walk with God. So that brings us to our second observation in verses 11 to 12. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. I'm wondering how you have been doing in some of these areas of your Christian life as we enter into the second month of 2024. There will be some graphs that will be coming up on the screen behind me so you can plot yourself so when it comes to lack of zeal or laziness of zeal or, or, or lack of enthusiasm on a scale of one to five, in terms of your zeal and passion for the Lord, if one is at the low point and five is its maximum, in just the next 10 seconds or so, make a mental note of what would represent your enthusiasm for the Lord. How have you been doing this last year? Is it a three? Three? Is it a one? Is it a four? If your Christian life were a car, what gear would it be in? First? Second? Third? Overdrive? Neutral? You're just parked up on the side of the road? Or worse, reverse? You're actually going backwards? So the question is, what stops you from being zealous? What stops you from being enthusiastic for the Lord? It's been sickness that slowed you down a little bit. Maybe grieving, you've lost someone or you've lost something. Other things that stop us from being zealous and enthusiastic are poor time management. Or you play up the struggles in your life and play down what God has done for you. But all I know is this when you become a Christian, when you become a Christ follower. You need to understand that your timetable should change. If you are expecting to live your life as before with no moderations, you will spiritually die this morning. Becoming a Christian is not just squeezing more into the same amount of time unless, of course, you did nothing before in your former life. It's about saying, I have to work out what is important and it's about priorities. It's about working out what is good and what is best. These are the more difficult areas of life. The choice is not, am I going to commit adultery today or am I going to go to church? It's much more than that. The definition is finer. It's about what is best and what is better. It's about the things that we think about, the things that we say, the things that we feel in our attitude and in our behaviour. And so there are things that I don't do anymore because I've just picked up a whole new set of relationships and it's called the family of God. I made a statement last week and that was, it is tragic when Christians end up with non-Christian friends with no no non-Christian friends. It is tragic when Christians end up with no non-Christian friends. So let me balance that by saying it's just as tragic. Christians don't understand the privilege that it is to be engaged in meaningful relationships with their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's just as tragic as well, when we don't understand, as Christians, the meaningful relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot love Jesus and not love his people. Matthew 25, 40 says, I tell you the truth, whenever you do to one of the least of these brothers of mine or sisters, you do it to me. And the opposite is true of Jesus' words as well. When you don't do it to them, Jesus says, you don't do it to me. So let's get back on point and talk about the opportunities we need to take when our unsafe friends and love them meaningful. The opportunities that we can take. A principle to keep in mind is not to keep your worlds separate. Don't keep your worlds separate. Try to include in your world, with church, your world as with church friends and non-church friends. It's an exciting thing to do, I tell you. <laughs> the dynamic of the community uh, that you work with and, and your friendships, try, try and blend them a little bit. Avoid living a double life. It's a much healthier way to live. And I guarantee you that your zeal and your enthusiasm for the Lord will either return or it will be heightened. Observation number three. So let me tell me something this morning. Are you joyful in hope? Are you joyful in hope? This is about our hope in heaven and our hope for heaven and for the age to come. So let's generally, genuinely reflect. Have you kept an eye on the prize? Are you looking for Jesus's return? Do you spend time thinking about the new creation, the lamb and the lion? I am shocked that many Christians are more about the here and now and pay no time or no mind for the age to come. In their hearts and in their minds there is no preparation when the end is brought up close and personal. Possibly in a terminal illness diagnosis or the end of an important chapter of one's life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8 says, We prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So on a scale of 1 to 5 in terms of joyfulness in hope, how would you rate yourself? Just for 10 seconds, make a mental note of what would represent your joyfulness in hope. A Christian commentator, David Jackson, tells the story. A little boy once asked his dad, Dad, what is sex like? After the father muttered and fumbled and for an answer, the little boy jumped back in and said, Is it better than chocolate? David Jackson goes on to say, There is neither marriage nor giving in marriage in glory, the new creation, because the commandments to multiply and fulfil the earth have been completed. Our resurrected, perfect, beautiful bodies will be naked, displayed in glory of the living... Uh, displayed, it's displayed in, displaying the glory of the image of God. Then the relationships we shall enjoy for eternity are going to be better than sex and originally designed and redeemed better than sex as originally designed and redeemed now if you only if the only thing you heard me say in that whole illustration was the word sex and now you're all in a bunch over it can i say with all respect you're seriously missing the point when that knowledge of our bodily resurrection gets down into your heart and into your soul and into your spirit, you will find that your hope is heightened. If you are in a bad marriage where tenderness and touch comes around as often as Halley's Comet, this good news will keep you going. If you are in a body racked with pain, that is, that is desperate, you are desperate to leave and be with Jesus... What will keep you going is the hope of the new creation. Observation number four. Did the joy of that certain hope that awaits you make you patient in your affliction? That's our fourth question. Patience doesn't mean you don't wrestle with God or that you won't shed a tear when suffering comes. But here's the $64 million the $64 million question this morning did the affection the affliction sorry that God allowed to come your way cause you to turn to your heavenly father or to run away from him so on a scale of 1 to 5 in terms of patience in affliction what have the last 6 to 12 months been like for you. So just in 10 seconds, make a mental note of what would represent your evaluation. Did the quota of suffering that God allowed you to experience make you bitter or better? Did it make you more like Jesus or less like Jesus? Malcolm Muggeridge uh, was a famous 20th century atheist and Marxist journalist in England who was enamoured by communism. But after communism became bankrupt, he surprised everyone and became a Christian. And in his biography, he says this. He says, in the 75 years that I have been on this earth, everything that I have learnt that has been of any value has come through suffering. Now, I think Malcolm has overplayed his hand in that statement a little bit because we do learn things from the goodness of God as well. But what is important is that if you don't have a theology that sees God, a God that uses suffering to shape you to be more like his son with the quota of tears and wrestling, then you will be constantly hijacked and not able to be patient in affliction. Observation number five faithful in prayer. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. In other words, to be regular and steady in the doing of asking. Of being regular and steady in the doing of asking. I think we pray a lot less than we think we do. So let me ask you, how have you been in the last 6 to 12 months? On a scale of one to five, in terms of your faithfulness in prayer, one being the least, just take ten seconds. Make a mental note on what would represent your evaluation. It's good to take stock of these things. It's, it's a form of self-accountability because something, sometimes we aren't as good as what we think we are. Even to the point of perhaps keeping a prayer journal. And seeing how little or how much we do pray. Observation number six. God, God, loving, loving God means that you'll end up loving your brother and sister. So Romans chapter 12 in, in, the, in the 10th verse says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourself. We are family. So no one gets left behind and no one, should want to be get, no one should want to get left behind either. As Christians, we are to consider others better than ourselves. Philippians chapter 2, verses, eight, verses 5 to 8 say, Your attitude should be at the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being formed in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was Jesus this morning, beloved, who stepped out of eternity from heaven to earth, from God to God, man, from God to death on a Roman cross. And with that mindset, we consider others better than ourselves. One of the things that keeps hijacking relationships and harming our love for each other is the kind of attitude that we take. You can't consider others better than yourself if your personality is marked with two things. Cynicism and sarcasm. Both of these postures are toxic waste in the Christian community and in the Christian relationships. Cynicism and sarcasm are really ways of protecting yourself from injury because it's a game we play to protect ourselves. Now, if you want to be cynical and sarcastic about idolatry, knock yourself out, okay? Knock yourself out. I'm not talking about banter. I'm not talking about joking. That's fine and healthy, but you know when the lines cross, don't you? You know when it's toxic waste emotionally and spiritually. So we need to flush out that from our church whenever and wherever these things manifest themselves. Observation number seven in verse 13, it says, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. This verse talks about practical kindness and professional care and then asks us to take that to the next level. It's about not keeping people at arm's length and and stiff-arming them. And I'm preaching to myself when I say we are are too guarded about our homes. We are too guarded about our homes. God didn't give us lovely homes so that we can simply keep them to ourselves. Let me ask you this. When was the last time someone from church at, at your table and when we do invite, we are often selective, aren't we? Romans 12 verse 16 says, Do not be proud, but we're willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. If all your friends are easy to get on with, then you are a selfish person. Because we should not need to not just love those who love us. We should not need to just love those who love us. Let me balance that by saying, if all your friends are a pain in the neck and jerks, then you're probably in an unhealthy situation too. You need a quota of people who are different. And so these people form our church. People form our church from all different types. These people form our church and they form our lives as well. So let's be honest this morning. As Christians... We have a hierarchy going on, don't we? We have a hierarchy going on. There is the cool and the not so cool in church. Everyone thinks that they're part of the cool and the elite, but the non-cool don't know that. There is a sense of don't invite people that don't invite you back. People don't always spend time and in the company of those that only give you pleasure. Don't do that. Please don't spend time in the company of those that only give you pleasure, who entertain your mind or you have some longevity with. Try and pick that person who doesn't have a chance of inviting you back or will never contribute to you in some kind of emotional way. Now, we're not just to let people into our houses We are to let them into our homes. Observation number 8 verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. In our Western culture, we miss the family intent of what that scripture is saying. Plainly, it is telling us we are family. We miss this because we all need our own space. We all need our own independence, our own TV, our own computer. And so there's no basis for what a family looks like many times in our lives. What the scripture is telling us is that in a family, when one suffers, we all suffer. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. Jesus taught and modeled this. Remember in John chapter 11, where one of Jesus's close friends, Lazarus, dies. And he eventually, eventually gets to Bethany, but he's four days late. The scripture tells us that he sees Mary for the first time and she is so upset that he's late. As Mary is, is, is complaining to Jesus, she bursts out in tears. And what does Jesus do? Does he bring a logical and an intelligent argument that he is the son of God and on and on? No. The shortest verse in the Bible tells us what happened. Jesus cried. He wept with her. The God who commanded us to weep with those who weep is doing exactly what he commands us to do. The amazing thing is he knew that within the hour he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead because our God doesn't have a heart of stone. Our suffering is does matter to him and as our suffering ought to matter uh, as our suffering ought to matter to me and my suffering ought to matter to you we are family and we need to nurture our affections so love for god does not simply end up with loving one another it includes unfortunately loving your enemies We all know the story of the husband who goes to the pastor and says, Pastor, I'm leaving my wife. I can't love her anymore. It's over. The pastor says, you must understand, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That's what the Bible says. The husband says, Pastor, you don't understand. My wife doesn't act like a wife. She's cold. She's distant. She doesn't act like a wife. The pastor says, well, if you can't love her as a wife, the Bible says, to love your neighbour as yourself. So love her as your neighbour. But you don't understand, Pastor, the husband says, she doesn't treat me like a neighbour. She is cruel. She is my enemy. The pastor says, well, you know what the Bible says. You have to love your enemies. The point is, there is no place to escape this justification. And that brings us to observation number 9, verses 17 to 11. I won't read it out again, but I will make reference to this block of text. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. But what should set us apart as Christians is that we love the enemy. We love the enemy. Every time you see the sun rise and the rain fall on the just and the unjust... God is saying, I'm teaching you what it means to love your enemy. We don't just love God or each other. We love the enemy. There's a Scottish proverb that says, the worst thing in life is to die without enemies. If you are a people pleaser and you have never held on to anything, then you haven't lived a valuable life. What is probably worse is dying, not loving your enemies. And this is so unnatural and it goes against the grain. Love means a number of things when it comes to your enemy. But at the very least, this needs to be your goal. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I want you to think of that difficult relationship. That you're in right now. The Bible's very realistic and it is not naive. If it is possible, because it may not be possible to reconcile, it may not be possible to be reconciled as much as it depends on you. In other words, make sure that you do everything within your heart and mind that maximizes reconciliation. Be at peace. It takes one person to forgive, but it takes two people to be reconciled. Dr. Larry Crabb is a Christian author and counsellor whose ministry specialises in relationships. He says these words on this topic. He says, We need to understand what we have control over in this world and what we do not. And we are only responsible for what we have control over. A goal is something of which you have control over and are responsible for a desire is something you would like to happen but you have no control over work towards your goals and pray for your desires in our text your desire is to be at peace with everyone this is something you need to pray for for instance someone has something against you someone hasn't forgiven you for something whatever the situation is The bottom line is, your desire is to be reconciled with that person. Now, our goal is to make sure that everything you do, what I do, what we do, everything that leaves our mouth, maximizes and facilitates reconciliation. You can technically do everything you are supposed to do, and there is still no peace. You still have an enemy. You and I will not be judged on the basis of whether there is no peace or there is peace. We will not be judged on that. You and I will be judged on what we contribute towards peace. If it, all, if it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let's close with our final observation. When you have been hurt, The most natural thing is to punish. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 and 19. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but... I like payback movies. Yeah. The vigilante movies where the where the bloke who has had his family blown up or kidnapped and then he's out for revenge, he's out for payback. Clint Eastwood, Charles Bronson, Mel Gibson, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jean-Claude Van Damme, all the movies that are associated with this these actors are those vigilante or payback movies. The reason we like these genres is there is a reason and a need for justice but God says don't retaliate you may confront in fact you should probably confront but don't humiliate you may call the police sometimes you must but don't personally be vindictive you may even need to use force to restrain someone from hurting another person But don't use excessive force and cross the line. Jesus gives us the greatest model of this in John chapter 18. Jesus is being interrogated and the soldier standing next to him doesn't like the way he spoke to the high priest. So the soldier thumps Jesus in the face. Now, Jesus says something very profound in verse 23. He says, if I'd said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Jesus, the Lord of the universe, could have terminated him on the spot. But he controls himself and doesn't retaliate. Jesus turns the other cheek. And so sadly, we think we have forgiven when we're not hating or retaliating. But God wants even more than that. He wants you to bless your enemy. God is not superficial. Superficial, sorry. And neither should you be. Neither are we. God demands, God's demands on our life, God demands on our life, is not to be a good person, but to be the best person that you can be. And all of this is a process this morning. It's a process. Verse 14, 19 to 21 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Things One of the keys to forgiveness that enables us to live with injustice is knowing that there will be a day of judgment. And I don't need to take things into my own hands because all injustice is in the hands of God and he will do what is right. This is the great comfort to hold on to this morning. Living a life worthy of the gospel, if we start living out this countercultural model and obeying God, the world will want to know what is the driving force behind your life. They'll want to know the, dro- the drive in our engine. So, brothers and sisters, when, may that may that be said of each and every one of us this morning as we seek to adorn the gospel with our lives. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you that the ground at the foot of the cross is flat and level. That we each equally need the death of Jesus. Thank you that the the slate is wiped clean. But there are things in our lives that are still not right. And we need to repent of those things. Lord, there isn't a man or a woman in this building. Who doesn't feel the weight of conviction in some area as I do at this moment? Father, we pray that we will indeed live a life that is countercultural, a life that adorns the gospel. That as we seek to love you and to love people and to love enemy in front of a watching world, we deem it our honour that in some small way, We can be a testimony to your glorious character. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. God's people said, Amen.